So today I'm going to need you guys to work with me. No distractions. No getting me off course. We've got a lot. This is a, this is a big chapter. We're going to try to get through all of chapter 17 today. So it depends on you guys to make sure that you actually get out for lunch today. Otherwise, just plan on dinner because we might be here all day if you guys, if you guys distract me. So hallelujah. So we're going to go ahead and continue in the Gospel of John, chapter 17, verses 1 through 26, which is the entire chapter. And you say, Pastor Wayne, why are you doing the whole chapter at once? Because there's no real easy way to break this apart. We need to do this together. And uh, after the teaching, the instructions uh, after, at the, during the Last Supper that Jesus just gave his, his apostles, um, we actually come to the section that, that most people refer to as the high priestly prayer. Jesus is going to begin to pray to God for himself, and then for his apostles, and then actually for all of us those of us who would believe. And, and here's the thing is Jesus had been preparing his disciples for what's to come, right? And we spent the last few weeks looking at what he was, was he was kind of buttoning up and reiterating some of his teaching that he'd been doing over the past several years to his apostles. And he wanted to prepare them for what was to come and ultimately to, to let them know that they should take heart because what they were about to see was going to send them running, but they should take heart because he had overcome the world. And he's teaching them this in anticipation of what he was about to accomplish on the cross. So then today he begins to pray. He begins to pray to the Father. And this prayer is going to be a little bit different than the prayers that we've seen previously. Like, for instance, the one in the, the Garden of uh, Gethsemane. In that prayer, you saw a distraught Jesus crying out to God saying, Lord, if there, there any be any other way, please take this cup from me, but not your will be done. And it's this, this prayer of passion and, and angst, and you really see the, the man in Jesus kind of stressing out over about what's to come. But this prayer is different because it's not one of angst. It's not one of, of agony. It's, it's, it's just a conversation with his father. And he begins the prayer first by asking that God would glorify him as he glorifies the father. Because the time has come. And we see this Jesus who's ready to be at the father's side once again. He knows he's come, he's accomplished what God has, uh, what the father has, has given him to accomplish and he's ready to go back to be at the Father's side. And then he begins to pray for the apostles of whom the, the Father had given him. And his, his primary thing is to ask that they would remain one, that they would remain united with him and the Father, even as the Father and himself are united. And then finally, he extends that prayer to everyone who would believe in him asking the same things, that we would be one with him. So I want you to remember as we're going through this prayer, particularly if we get to the part about the apostles, that it's not, he's not just praying for the 11 apostles at the time. He's actually praying for each and every one of us. Amen? So let's go ahead and get started. Like I said, we got lots to get through. John 17 verses 1 through 3 says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, and this is eternal life, 
that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. You see, the Father and the Son had such a relationship that Jesus could just speak directly to the Father. You see, before this, there, there really wasn't that relationship between the people of Israel and God. You see, God spoke to the people of Israel through prophets. But we see something different with Jesus because Jesus can have direct conversations with the Father. He can just go straight to Him. And we learn that this is the, the same relationship that we now have with the Father through Christ. Multiple times in chapter 16, Jesus said the disciples would be able to ask directly to the Father. Do you understand how different that was compared to the way it was before? Then you couldn't go to the Father yourself before. But now Jesus says, no, listen, you, don't, you can just go directly to the Father. And, and I say that, I don't even say that I'll, you come through me and then I'll ask for you. He says, no, you get to go directly to the Father. And then right after chapter 16, he says this multiple times, he gives this wonderful demonstration of what that looks like as Jesus prays directly to the Father. And then he starts and he says, Father, the hour has come. I don't know if you remember as we looked through, as we've gone through um, the last 16 chapters, there were multiple times when Jesus made a decision or Jesus slipped away or Jesus got ornery with his mom because the hour had not yet come. The time wasn't there, so Jesus did things to, to, to belay what the people wanted. They wanted to kill him, right? There was a time that this was supposed to happen, but he, he kept putting it, he put it off. He said, the hour has not yet come, but now we're in a different situation because the hour has come. And so now since there's no more delaying it, there's no more putting it off, there's no more holding it off to the right time, the time is now, he begins to pray. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. And then he says, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. One of the things that this demonstrates here too is that, uh, one, we see that Jesus has been given all authority to give eternal life to all that the Father had given him. And we're going to find out that, like I said, when we start talking about all that he had given him is first the apostles, but then we see it applies to, to all of us to grant us eternal life as well. But it also demonstrates that what Jesus was doing was actually in accordance to the will of the Father. Because who gave him the authority? The Father. So the, the plan of salvation was the Father's, even though Jesus is the one who goes out and actually accomplishes it. The plan was the Father's, and, and the Father gave Jesus the authority to do it over all of flesh, to give eternal life to whomever the Father had given him. It was always the Father's plan. And that's one of the main evidences that, that we're going to see later on is that, is that the disciples, the apostles, believed Jesus because they believed the Father had sent him, because they believed he was operating in the Father's authority. And then he says, listen, I give eternal life to all whom you've given me. And then he describes what eternal life is. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in, Christ, in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. You see, the, the, Jesus is defining eternal life as to know the Father and to know the Son. 
And really, more specifically, when you boil this down to the nuts and bolts, it's about knowing the Son, right? Because in John 14, 6 through 7, just a, uh, probably a month or two ago, we talked about this. Jesus says, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, then you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So how did they know the Father? Because they knew the Son, so to have eternal life is to know Jesus and through him to know the Father. This is one of those reasons why uh, you hear people say that Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship. It's about knowing the Son. It's not about following a bunch of rules and doing a bunch of things. That's what religion is. Christianity is about knowing the Son, knowing Jesus. And we know him by putting our faith in him, by believing what he said, believing that the Father sent him, by trusting in him. And this is an ongoing way, ongoing thing, by the way. You have to continue to have a relationship with him. To, to know somebody is to be in relationship ongoing. You know, if, if, if I never spoke to my wife again after today, it wouldn't take long before you guys would say, you don't really have a relationship with her, right? Relationship is ongoing. And one of the things that I find interesting that I think has great application in our life is you'll notice something when Jesus prays. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son. And you might think, oh man, that's pretty egotistical of Jesus. Why does he want to be glorified? But you realize that he's actually not even doing it for his own, his own uh, 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 edification or to, to, to make himself big in front of other people. It wasn't for his own exaltation, but rather so that he could glorify God. You see, Jesus knew that being glorified in his crucifixion and in his resurrection, he would be able to glorify the Father so that God's wisdom, power, might, and love would be known through him. And then by granting eternal life to all those who the Father had given him, which are all those who believed in his name. Know this, that that's our purpose as well, to glorify him. You see, when we pray, I think the intent of how we pray makes a big difference. You know, when you're asking God to make sure that you're successful, to, to have the resources you need, if you're doing it just to build up yourself, you're not in the right attitude. You don't have the right frame of heart. And I think you find yourself in a place where you're stepping outside of the will of God. But to pray those things knowing to do it for the purpose of God. It's a completely different story. And we see that with Jesus. Jesus prayed to be glorified again, but not for his own exaltation, but instead that God would be glorified. And like I said, that's our real purpose too, is to glorify him so that the world would know of his wisdom, his power, his might, and his love through knowing his son. Amen. And then he continues on in verses 4 through 5, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. 
And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Everything that Jesus had done and what he would be doing in the very near future was glorifying to God. You see, Jesus had accomplished what the Father had sent him out to do. And even this, this prayer was looking forward to, be, to what would be accomplished in his death and resurrection. Because he was obedient even unto death. And the reality is, is that when we look at what, what Jesus is talking about, saying, I have accomplished the work that you have given me. Like, wait a minute, he hasn't accomplished it yet. This is, this is some hours before, but he's looking forward to, to what would be a certainty. What was about to happen wasn't to, hey, it could happen, it could not. It was a certainty that he was going to accomplish what the Father had sent him, uh, sent him to accomplish. And notice that the way that he glorifies God is by completing that which God had called him to do. Anybody here want to glorify God? Did you know that there's a simple litmus test to know that if you've, you're glorifying God, are you accomplishing what he called you to do? Jesus said, listen, I glorified you on earth. How? Having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. That is how we can glorify God, is accomplishing the work that he gave us to do. And that's a quick question we can ask ourselves. Are we glorifying God? Are we just doing our own thing? Are we just accomplishing what we want to do? Or are we actually looking, what does God have for my life? And I, am I making sure that I'm doing that? But Pastor Wayne, that could cost me. That means I might not be able to, to move as far at work or I might, I might be tired or I might not have as much free time as I want or I might not be able to do all the things that I want. Well, yeah, it cost Jesus his life and he still did it. So quit complaining because he hasn't asked you to do that yet. The reality is, is that we're to accomplish what God sent us to accomplish. Amen. And then in looking forward to the completion of his work, Jesus is ready to return to the Father's side. He says, now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. You see, Jesus is ready to return to the Father's side to reclaim the glory that he once had. What do you mean the glory that he once had? Well, the reality is, is that Jesus is God incarnate. He set aside his deity. He set aside his glory so that he could live as a man to give everything for us. Now, it's not that he was stopped being God when this happened. He just set it aside, considering it a thing not to be grasped. He was still God. He still had the glory. He just set it aside, but he gets to pick it back up as he sits at the, the Father's side again. So he says, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed even before the creation of the world. And when we look at that, what does he mean by the creation of the world? Well, the creation of the world was that moment when, when God spoke into existence matter, space, and time. You know, and it's funny, even when you look at the sciences, we see that that's a reality. Everybody agrees that there was a beginning. That's actually not contested. There was a beginning. And at that moment, matter, space, and time came into existence. And Jesus was there before that. 
And we know that Jesus' prayer was answered. Because in Acts 7.56, Stephen says, And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. It's funny, before I was studying this, I never really thought about that as, as evidence, even more evidence that, that, that Christ had accomplished what he set out to accomplish. He says, listen, glorify me with the glory that I had before, and then we find out it happens. And then we just see another piece of the puzzle, another piece of, the, of, of evidence that Jesus Christ was really God because he existed before the foundation of the world. And it's not to say this, that's the only piece of evidence that proves it, right? Because the angels did too, right? <laughs> so they were there with God before, before all this. At least I think, now, now that you got me thinking about it. So don't distract me. I'm going to have to look into that. Because now I'm confused when the angels were created. Hmm. Anyways, don't distract me. <laughs> But it is evidence that Jesus was there with the Father before the creation of the world. And then we find out that through all things were created through him. Amen. All things were created through him. Which includes the angels. Amen. <laughs> Hallelujah. Verses 6 through 8. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and that they have received them, and I have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. After Jesus prays for himself that he would be glorified so that he could glorify the Father, he moves on to praying for, at this time, the 11 apostles. <clears throat> These men were the men that the Father had given him. These were men that had been separated out from the world so that they could receive the Father's word through Jesus. And Jesus commends them to the Father. Wouldn't that feel good to know that Jesus was commending you to the Father? He commends them to the Father. Why? because they have kept your word. We know that the disciples weren't perfect. We know that all of them had issues, right? I mean, Judas, he was, he was just a mess. He just took off. And then we have Peter, who is going to deny Jesus three times. And actually, we know that all of them are going to scatter and ultimately run away because of what happens. But they did respond to the message given to them by Jesus. That's why they were commended, because they believed and they kept his word. They received these words through Jesus. They came to know the truth through Jesus, and then they believed them. And they believed that Jesus was who he says he was, and that he was sent by the Father. And this was important because Jesus was about to give his life. You know, had they not been fully convinced in what Jesus was saying, then Christianity would have ended there. 
If they wouldn't have been convinced, they wouldn't have been able to be turned around when Jesus showed himself to them and, and end up changing the world by preaching the gospel. Of people that were destroyed all of a sudden becoming incredibly strong and standing on what Jesus said to the point of giving their life for it. They would have never been able to get over the death of Jesus if they weren't convinced that he had been sent by the Father and that his words were true. But since they were convinced, they found them in a self, themselves in a position to understand that Jesus' death was necessary. And when Jesus shows them, himself to them again, it all clicks. And they look back and see the words that Jesus, that Jesus spoke and they moved forward in confidence and boldness from that point on. Even though that we all know they had a momentary hiccup, they all turned around after Jesus is resurrected. And every single one of them give their life in service and obedience to Jesus. Matter of fact, all the disciples were recorded as having been martyred except for John. And he was just left to die on an island. And then in John 17, 9 through 11, it says, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine. And I am glorified in them, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Like I said, he's specifically praying for the 11 apostles now. Those who have been given to him by the Father. But like I said, don't, uh, don't stress out. Don't worry. He's talking about us too. We can take what he's praying as an actual direct prayer for each and every one of us. And, and, and I'm not just uh, uh, conjecturing here. We're going to find out in verse 20. That's exactly what Jesus said. But in this moment, we see something weird. He says, I'm not praying for the world. I'm just praying for them. Jesus is excluding the world. And that seems odd because we know that, that God loves the world. We know Jesus loved the world. I mean, that's what it says. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Because God loved the world, because Jesus loved the world, he was willing to come. But the reality is, is that in this moment, and even today, that the world is hostile and unbelieving towards God and towards Jesus. But also notice that it's super easy to be included in this prayer. You just believe. If you find yourselves amongst the believers, you find yourselves amongst those whom, the, whom Jesus is praying for. And here's the reason why he's praying for them and not the world, because he recognizes that the apostles, these 11 apostles, are going to be left alone without Jesus to face this hostile and unbelieving world. They're going to be facing the ones that hated Jesus and who are now going to hate them. And for those of you who know the rest of the story, you know this is true. The persecution becomes so great at some point that they're all flushed out of Jerusalem because the world was against them because they believed in Jesus. So Jesus, knowing this, he asks that they would be protected and kept in the Father's name. He says, Father, keep them in your name. 
Other translations will say something along the lines of keep them by the power of your name. And you have to understand that what Jesus is actually asking when he says keep them in your name, uh, in those days when, when you were referring to in, in the name of something, you were actually referring to that person. Their name represented them and their power and their authority. So Jesus is asking that they would be protected by the Father and his power and his authority so that they would remain united in will and purpose even as the Father and the Son are united. He says that they may be one even as we are one. You know, they were going to need that unity, that protection as, as things unfolded over the next several days and really have been unfolding over the next several thousand years. And then Jesus goes on. In verse 12, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. When Jesus walked on the earth, he was the point of focus for all the apostles, all the disciples that were walking with him. And it was because of Jesus that their will and purpose were united. They were united behind Jesus. They had one goal, one purpose, one mission. They were united when they were with Jesus. And while Jesus was with them, he was the one that was keeping them in the name of the Father, in the power of his name. But that was going to change, right? Because Jesus would be leaving him, except for the one. He says, listen, Father, I kept every single one that you had given me. I've guarded them. Not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction. We all know that Jesus is referring to Judas here. But we see something interesting when we're reading about this. We see this interesting juxtaposition between God's sovereignty and man's free will. Judas, Judas, was given the same love, teaching, opportunity, and protection by Jesus that all the other disciples were given. You have to understand that Judas wasn't treated differently. Judas was still called in. And we saw when we talked about the last, uh, even up till Judas betrayed him, we saw that Jesus loved him and seemingly kept giving him an opportunity to, to repent. He was kept by Jesus, being guarded in the name of the Father. And I know that because it says, While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me, and I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost. So that means that Judas was included in this. He doesn't say, I kept most of them in your name, except for the son of destruction, which was to be lost. He says, no, I actually lost him. Now it was to fulfill scripture. This had to happen. But the reality is, is that Judas had all the same, it was in the same situation as the other, uh, the other apostles. The difference was that he made different choices. There's a different outcome because he chose something else. And God has given all of us free will to make choices and decisions. We're all free to choose to believe in him, to trust in him, to love him, or to remain his enemy. And because of this, in this simple passage, we see the, the um, immense and powerful ramifications 
of the choices that we make. Now what Judas did had to occur to fulfill Scripture. So we also see how God can use the results of free will to still accomplish His purpose. Because Jesus was, or Judas wasn't forced to do what he did. He made the choice willingly. He did it of his own accord. It was his decision. But God knew that it would happen. God knew that it was coming. He wasn't caught by surprise. And he used this event to accomplish his purpose. And ultimately make a way for all of us to be saved. Amen? And in verse 13, he says, But now I am coming, but now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Jesus had given a lot of encouragement over his years, ministering to the apostles, and especially up in this teaching at the Last Supper that he's been giving them. And as a result, they were prepared to see what was going to happen because they were going to see Jesus willingly go to the cross for the joy set before him. You see, we know at any time Jesus could have called down angels and, and, and been set free. He could have ensured that he didn't go through what he was going to go through, but Jesus did it willingly because of us, the joy set before him. And then when they seen this all played out, they would be able to remember his teaching and what he said and, and understand that he had conquered the evil one and they would have eternal life, not that he had been defeated. And they would also be able to remember these words and have Jesus' joy fulfilled within himself. He says, these things I speak in the world, really so that after all this happened, they would be able to remember and experience joy instead of defeat and anguish. Amen? And then he continues on in verse 14, I have given them your word. The world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Jesus had given them the Father's world, word, and they believed it. And as a result, they were, they were never the same. They were ch fundamentally changed because they believed in him. But the, the thing with this is that just, be, just as the world hated Jesus, now the world was going to hate them. And the reality is, is that what the disciples were about to go through was going to be incredibly difficult. And ultimately, like I said, it was going to cost each and every one of them their lives. But it's interesting that Jesus makes it clear that he's not asking them to be taken out of the world. You know, their suffering, their pain, their persecution, everything they went through could have been eliminated, avoided, had he just asked the Father to take them out of the world. But the problem is, is that when that stuff happens, if that were to happen, we wouldn't have the opportunity that we have today. You see, if, if, if the Father would have just taken them out of the world to protect them from the suffering and pain that they were going to experience in the future, then the gospel would have never have been preached. It would have never been shared. And we would have never heard the gospel. And we would have never known that Jesus made a way for us. 
So Jesus didn't ask them to be removed from the world, only that they would be protected from the evil one. So he does ask protection for them, but not to be taken from this world. And the reality is, is that as Christians, each and every one of us are going to face difficult times. We live in a fallen world. There are just some realities that come from a fallen world. People talk about all the, the increased earthquakes and hurricanes and tornadoes and all these things. But we live in a fallen world. It's, it's falling apart. The, the scripture says that, that the earth is groaning in anticipation for Jesus' return. We live in a broken and fallen world. Some of those things we're just going to experience because we live in this world. We're going to face persecution. You're going to experience some stuff just because you're a Christian. Because the world hated Jesus, it is going to hate you. And we have been very cushioned and protected here in the United States. Although we're starting to see that turn just a little bit. And you know what? We're going to have to remain as well and endure these things. Now, for sure, God will protect us and see us through to make sure that we accomplish what he has asked us to accomplish. But we must remain in order that those be behind us will hear the gospel. It's like when Paul oscillated between wanting to be with Jesus or stay and minister to, the, to his body that he left behind, the people that he loved left behind. And he says, you know what? I would prefer to go be with Jesus but it is better for your sake if, I, sake if I stay behind. So for that reason, I think I'll stay behind. You see, the reality is, is that we live in a hostile, fallen, broken, unbelieving world. And we're going to experience the realities of living in that kind of world. As a Christian, it doesn't mean your life is all gumdrops and lollipops from here on out. There's some stuff that we experience, we all experience collectively, right? The, the scripture says that the rain falls on the just and the unjust alike. Natural disasters fall on the just and the unjust alike. It's one of the main reasons why I, I don't, many people will complain or proclaim that some of these natural disasters are judgments of God, they're the punishment of God, discipline of God. But the scripture says that, that, that God disciplines his sons, so if it's something that's impacting Christians and non-Christians equally, I don't think we can call it the discipline of the Lord because he disciplines his sons. The reality is we live in a fallen world that's just messed up and all these things are happening. And, and we, because we are in this world, even though we're not a part of it, we get to experience much of it. But be encouraged that we would be protected from the evil one. That Jesus prayed those things for you, amen. And then in verse 16 through 19, it says, they are not of this world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. How many know that we're just sojourners in this place? Just temporarily passing through. We are not of this world. He said, Jesus says, I'm not of this world, and they are not of this world. If you are in Christ, you are no longer of this world. You're just passing through. So Jesus said, I pray that they would be sanctified in truth, and your word is truth. You see, the words of God are truth, and they are life-changing. 
just as the disciples had heard the words of Jesus, which ultimately were the words of the Father, right? That's what Jesus said. Their hearts and their minds were changed. And this change in their thinking, this change in their heart impacted how they lived their lives. So ultimately how they lived was changed as well. You know, this is why we're commanded to renew our mind because when you read the Word of God, when you spend time on the Word of God, your, your brain is literally rewired to think differently. They've done studies on this. It's been quite amazing. Uh, they've done studies on pornography that if, if men uh, and women, it doesn't really matter, even though it's, it's typically primarily men, although that's shifting in today's culture. But when you, when you watch pornography, it actually rewires your brain to think in a different way. It actually changes how your synapses fire and your thought processes work. But they've also discovered that if you spend time in the Word, it actually rewrites it back to the way that it was supposed to be. The Word of God has power, and it changes how you think, how you live, as you put your trust in it. So we're commanded to renew our mind, and that's, that's, that's accomplished by exposure to the Word of God. And if all you're hearing is the Word of God one day a week, that's not enough. There's a, um, uh, a, a little... Uh, real or Instagram real clip that's run around by another pastor preaching and I, I forget which church it is but he's talking about a, a study um, that was conducted by the I think it's the the, the, the Biblical Institute or the um, I think it was the Biblical Institute or Research and Biblical Institute anyway but they did a study that um, they started wanting to see the correlation of people reading the Word of God and how it impacted their life. And they, they had a bunch of different uh, factors that they were impacted, like your, your relational health and your personal health and your mental health and all these things. And they found that if you, read, if, you, if you were exposed to the Word of God, you read the Word of God one time a week, it had almost no real-life impact in a person's life, no real-world impact. If they, read the, if they were in, into the Word of God twice a week, still the same thing, almost no, no impact. Three times a week, they started to see a little impact, but there was something about four times a week that it drastically changed uh, the relational and personal aspects of people's mental health just by reading the Word of God, because the Word of God has power and it makes a difference. So like I said, if you're only hearing it once on Sunday, that's not enough. You have to read. Did you know when it says renew your mind? That's a command. Spend time in the Word every day. As much as you possibly can. Because the benefits are immeasurable. And then it says, For their sake I cons consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. See, Jesus consecrated himself by willingly going to the cross so that we as believers would be sanctified. To be sanctified is to be set apart for God's purposes. Amen? And then John 17, 20-21, he says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So you remember when I was saying that what he was praying for the 11 apostles also applied for us? 
Like I said, it wasn't conjecture. Jesus just flat out says it. Jesus says that what he had just prayed was for us. I don't ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So that just means any believer that's ever going to, to believe in them because of the word of these apostles, it applies to us as well. Jesus desired the same thing for all of us. And that we would put our trust, all of us who would put our trust in him, that we would be united in hope and in purpose, that we would be united in love and obedience and commitment to the Father's will, that we would all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Jesus was concerned about this unity of the body of Christ. And this unity is important because as a result of it, the world would hear about Jesus and believe that he was sent from the Father. That's the the ultimate purpose, that the world may believe that you have sent me. We're, We're to be united so that we can effectively share the gospel message to others. So that the world would come to know him and put their trust in him for salvation. And this request didn't stop at the first layer of believers. This prayer of unity and protection was for all of us who would put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ so that the whole world would hear. Amen? And then in verse 22 through 23, it says, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one. Are you starting to notice a theme, this idea of unity being one? He says, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. You see, Jesus is still praying for all of us. It wasn't just that last couple of verses. He's continuing to pray for all of us. That includes you and me, everybody in this room that has put their trust in Jesus Christ. But he goes into a little bit greater depth describing this idea of unity. You see, Jesus was glorified in what he accomplished on the cross. And because of that, we are to be brought into one body. We are to be sanctified and set apart in order to reveal the redemptive plan of God to the rest of the world. And we are united in purpose to share this truth, the truth of the gospel to the world. And this this is also evidence, the glorification and, and unity that the Father sent Jesus and that the Father loves us. You know, it's interesting that this this unity and, and deliverance of God's redemptive plan to the world by preaching Jesus is evident, evidence that, that Jesus is who he says he was, that the Father sent him. Do you know how many times that Christianity has, has that the world has attempted to completely crush or quash Christianity. There was an attempt in the Middle Ages to burn every single Bible in existence, yet God's Word still prevailed. There's been so many times in history, I mean, you see it even now, that Christianity is treated differently. We have to respect all the other world religions. You can't make a joke about Buddha. You can't make a joke about Muhammad. You can't insult any of these other religions, even some of the new ones that are coming out that are based on witchcraft and all of these things that are trying to be recognized religions. You can't say anything bad about them. But it's perfectly okay to mock and ridicule Christians and what they believe. 
the enemy has been trying to destroy Christianity since it started. But he has failed. And our unity is evidence that he has sent us. That the Father, that the Father sent Jesus and that Jesus sent us. Amen. It blows my mind that there's just not the same. I guess it really shouldn't. Like I said, it's all all points to the reality of the truth. You know, in this, and especially in our country now, that we're starting to to experience persecution more. It's still not bad. Don't don't get me wrong. We still got it way easier than Christians in other countries. Uh, currently, statistically, now and for the past several years, Christians are the most persecuted people group in the world. And it ain't happening here. <laughs> but the reality is, is that you don't see the same push by the world to destroy all these other religions because they don't have any power. The devil doesn't care if you believe in Muhammad. The devil doesn't care if you put your trust in Buddha. The devil doesn't care if you're a Wiccan. But he doesn't want you to be a Christian. Amen. And then verse 24, it says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So while Jesus didn't ask for them to be taken immediately out of the world, he does desire that we join him after our purpose is complete. You see, the ultimate result of our salvation is future glorification alongside Jesus and be able to see his glory. And when that day comes, we're going to be able to see Jesus in his full glory with which he had before the foundation of the world. Amen. So be encouraged by this. The God of all the universe, the creator of all things, wants you to be with him for eternity. Isn't that amazing? Jesus says, that they may be where I am. Jesus actually wants us <laughs> to be with him. That's amazing to me. And then we'll end here. In John 17, 25 through 26, he says, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know, you, know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved may be in them and I in them. So Jesus refers to the Father as righteous, O righteous Father. The implication here is that the Father is right and the world is wrong. And that's why they don't know him. You see, the, the world's idea of righteousness is at odds with God's idea of righteousness. But Jesus knows the Father, and through him the disciples do as well, because they believed that the Father sent him. And the same is true for us. And Jesus has made known the name of the Father and will continue to do so, with the ultimate purpose being that the name of the Father will continue. <clears throat> uh, that, the name of the, that the love of the Father towards Jesus would be found in them. That was the ultimate purpose. I love that Jesus prayed this prayer out in front of his disciples. You know, this could have been a, uh, the, 
Jesus could have prayed this prayer in isolation, away from the disciples, and the Father would have answered it just the same. The end result would have been the same. Jesus didn't have to pray this in front of them. But the disciples got to hear. And by extension, because it was recorded, all of us got to hear how much Jesus cared for his disciples. They get to hear the genuine concern and love that he had for them. And I don't know about you, church, but that's amazing to me. I'm so blown away and in awe when I see how much God loves me. Now you guys might think, well, you're a pretty good guy. That's understandable, but I know me. You don't know me. And I don't know how God still loves me. And we get to hear it, come out and say it, that he loves us, he cares for us, he wants us protected, he wants us safe, and he wants us to ultimately be with him. You see, Jesus prayed this so that they could hear him, so that they would be encouraged for what was to come. So church, the same is true for us. Be encouraged that Jesus prayed for you to be united with him, the Father and other believers, and to be protected from the evil one. And be encouraged that his desire is for us to be with him in eternity. Amen.